Okay, welcome. This is our World Religions Talk. My name is Will Stevie, and this is Samuel Webb, and uh, this is The Contemplating Christian. We'll start off with a quote from Blaise Pascal. We quote from him often, and he's a fantastic, brilliant thinker. And he says this about religion. He says, Man's greatness and wretchedness are so evident that the true religion must necessarily teach us that there is in man some great principle of greatness and some great principle of wretchedness. So whatever worldview, whatever worldview or religion is true has to account for the fact that man is both awful and great. And if you don't account for those two things in man, you're probably not quite right. Mm-hmm. And he actually goes on to have another quote and says this about man. And this is what he says about the greatness and wretchedness that the religions have to explain. He says, what sort of freak then is man? How novel, how monstrous, how chaotic, how paradoxical, how prodigious. Judge of all things, feeble earthworm, repository of truth, sink of doubt and error, the glory and refuse of the universe. And that's what he says. So he is really getting at human nature, how it is actually kind of weird and just contradictory in some ways. And so we have to explain that. We have to explain that. That We can't get around it. Man is a paradox. We are both the greatest thing in the universe, the most unique, distinct from all the animals, special creation, but also capable of the worst evils. And in most instances, the worst things on earth are us Mm -hmm. and the things that we do. So to go into that then... Worldviews. You could use the term worldview to describe what we're talking about here. World religions or worldviews. So uh, the question of what is a worldview, you hear this word a lot. Uh, To define it, I would say it is the conceptual lens through which we see, understand, and interpret the world and our place within it. A really easy way to say it is simply the story that we tell ourselves about the world that we live in and our place in it. Just an easier way to say the story we tell ourselves, the story that we live in is our worldview. There's three big families that we're going to talk about uh, of worldview. We'll talk about the Eastern faiths, so Hinduism, Buddhism, and New Age, which is kind of an Americanized version of Buddhism and Hinduism. We have the Abrahamic faiths, so Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And then we'll talk about the secularist faiths, uh, and we're calling them faiths tongue-in-cheek. Uh, atheism, agnosticism, and we're also going to talk about postmodernism. And uh, yeah, that'd yeah. be really good. <clears throat> so um, what we're going to be doing for this is after we go through the worldview, we're actually going to analyze the worldview and give a critique of it, okay? And so uh, on the left of the screen here, we have a guy named Douglas Grutice. He's really, really good. He's a modern apologist, um, and he's, he's written quite a few books on critiquing worldviews or apologetics or truth. Um, but he's really, really good. So we, we took some of the stuff from him. Um, but one thing we're going through is we're going to go over the three questions uh, for the worldviews and, and show you each of the worldviews' answers to them. So we're going to go over what is the nature of reality, what is the nature of man, and what is the end of man. That'll, that'll pretty much cover um, all or most topics. Yeah. And then kind of another criteria that we're going to be judging each worldview as we analyze it is internal consistency. Another way to say that is just logical coherence. Does the system hold together in and of itself? Or does it hold contradictory beliefs within the system? For example, if a a worldview holds that God exists and also God does not exist, in a very stupid, simple example, that's a logically inconsistent, incoherent worldview. So a true worldview has to be logically consistent. Next 
Is it externally consistent? Does it correspond to the evidence we see of the world around us? Not only is it logically coherent in and of itself, but does it actually match onto reality? So I could construct a system that might be logically coherent, but if it doesn't actually cohere with the world outside of us, it's also not a good worldview. So it has to have, it has to have evidential correspondence. Next is existential consistency. And this is basically, is the worldview livable? Another way we're saying it is pragmatic satisfaction. How livable is the worldview? So for example, nihilism is often critiqued for not being a very livable system. If you're just a complete nihilist, that's not a very livable worldview. So those are the criteria we're going by. Is it logically coherent? <clears throat> is it evidentially coherent? And uh, does it pragmatically satisfy us as human beings? Is it a livable system? So first, we will go into the Eastern faiths, which you're probably the least amount of familiarity with, so this, is, this will be really good. One of the reasons we're doing this is because we have a, a greater understanding of our own beliefs if we're able to compare and contrast with other religions and know what they believe. It helps us to understand our own beliefs as well. So first is Hinduism. This is a massive religion, primarily in India, but also uh, spreads out quite a bit from there. Uh, so the first question, what is the nature of reality in Hinduism? Okay, this is going to be the hardest thing to grasp, probably. So I'm going to try my best. The first thing to note is that Hinduism is not monolithic. That's a fancy word that just means um, it's not all the same system. There are many different sects of Hinduism, and any given Hindu might believe something radically different from another Hindu. Uh, in Christianity, we have some of that. We've got you know, Catholics and Protestants um, and others. But in Hinduism, I would say it's even, it's even more difficult to, to nail down exactly what Hinduism is. It's quite a vague system. There's a, there's a radical diversity of perspectives within the religion that is Hinduism. But depending on the brand of Hinduism you subscribe to, you could either be uh, a polytheist, meaning you believe in many gods, uh, a pantheist, where you believe that everything is God, and that those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, and then panentheism, which maybe you've never heard of before. Panentheism is similar to pantheism. Pantheism says that everything is God, Panentheism says that God is both outside of the universe, but also in everything. So like everything is God, but also he's, he's also outside of everything too. Okay, so that's panentheism. And, and Hindus fall on different places on that spectrum. So there's lots of diversity and it's hard to nail things down. Many Hindus use the term Brahman. This is sort of a really important term in Hinduism to describe this vague, multifaceted conception of God or the divine being, they, they call Brahman. Uh, they also, some believe that Vishnu is a sort of personal God-esque type thing that stands above other gods in the pantheon of gods. But for most Hindus, Brahman is this sort of, uh, they call it a world soul that uh, is sort of the divine reality behind everything and also in us as well. It's kind of confusing. Um, so our, the world soul, which is Brahman, um, each of us have what they call an Atman. It's a similar word, different, and it's basically the spiritual or soul-like aspect of every individual, and also the <coughs> divine being itself. So things start to get complicated and weird and a bit contradictory here. They will say things like, everything is Brahman. They'll make statements like that. Uh, that's a pretty popular statement in Hinduism, is that everything is Brahman. Everything is divine. But at the same time, you have the problem of differentiating between people and objects and things like that. Um, 
So things start to get a little bit convoluted. The bottom line, the, the most important principle to know is that they lack a clear distinction between the creature and the creator. There's no clear distinction there, and things get blurry between creator God and creatures. And so that brings a lot of problems. Samuel. Yeah, so the next question is, what is the nature of man? So what are human beings according to Hinduism? So one thing you, you've most people have definitely heard of these two terms, reincarnation and karma. They would they would say this is one of the um, foremost principles when it comes to explaining man. So reincarnation, when you die, you come back as something else. And then also karma, if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. That's karma. So if someone does something really bad, they might come back as like a cockroach or uh, a person in a really bad situation. If yeah. someone lives a good life, they might come back as someone super rich or something like that. Um, and so th that's what we would say the explanation of the nature of man is. They, they're part of this cycle, um, and man in this cycle can achieve liberation through works, knowledge, and devotion. So what, what man is supposed to do or meant to do or is created for is works, knowledge, and devotion to this God, okay? Um, and, and that's what would make them one of those works-based religions as opposed to, um, again, like Christianity, grace. So, yeah, that's what we would say is the nature of man according to Hinduism. Right, and then the end of man is very related to this whole system. Uh, when you have reincarnation, which most Hindus believe in, that is whoever, whoever you are, your soul-ish type thing, and again, they wouldn't use that term and it's a bit vague, but that'll survive the death of the body and you will be reincarnated into a different physical form of some, of some kind. And so this whole system is based off your ethicalness in your life. So however good you are in that life will determine and push you into either a better situation next time around or a worse situation next time around. And so it's very moralistic in this sense. Um, and the best outcome uh, is a liberation from this cycle of death and rebirth in life. And this is, this is called uh, moksha. I don't know how to actually pronounce it because I'm not Hindu. I don't know. But moksha or moksha, something like that, is the escape from this cycle of rebirth. And it is where you basically, uh, you get absorbed into this greater world soul called Brahman. So, and this might be sort of like a, a loss of consciousness or sort of a blissful state. It's pretty ill-defined. Um, but the liberation from the cycle of rebirth is the end of man. That's the best hope you have. Otherwise, you're just going to be in this constant hamster wheel of reincarnation. Yeah. yeah. Now we're actually going to analyze all of this. Yeah. All right, so uh, analysis of Hinduism. Uh, I'm going to be doing internal and external consistency. So for internal consistency, we would, we would make one point. It's really inconsistent, if not completely contradictory. What we mean by that is it, uh, it confuses things. It, uh, it makes two different claims or two different distinctions, but they actually are, it, it confuses instead of clarifies. So for example, they confuse the self and the divine, right? You, you don't really know the, uh, the fine line between, oh, me as a human being and also uh, God or the divine yeah. like where where is that line and so when they say oh these two are actually different or um, we have these two things but they're the same it's really really confusing and they don't make a clear distinction or a clear point mm -hmm. um, and so we would say internally within their system that's a problem they can't they can't explain that or there's some confusion and then for external consistency we would say they believe in an eternal universe 
there was no beginning to the universe. It's been there forever. And so that would actually go against, one, some philosophical arguments, and then two, scientific evidence. And so that's the external consistency or external inconsistency right there, if you want to say that. Um, they are inconsistent with external evidence. Um, and so that's that first point. The second point is lack of evidence for reincarnation. So in this cycle of reincarnation, we actually aren't really sure um, how it works. We don't have evidence of it. We, there, there's nothing that we have right here that can point to it. Um, it it's pretty mysterious. That's what we would say. Right. Yeah, and then when you go to existential consistency, there's kind of a lot of problems that tie together. Um, because there's no clear creature-creator divide, there's also no clear and consistent way to label what is good and evil in Hinduism. It's actually quite difficult. Um, given that there's no distinction and standard for right and wrong uh, from a god who made everything and is the standard himself, uh, they can't give a really satisfying account in response to the evil in the world. Not only that, but there's also, uh, as I want to talk about in this caste system that's very prevalent and all wrapped up into the system of Hinduism, um, evil is sort of just what people deserve. So if people are in a bad state, it's kind of just what they deserve. They, they accrued bad karma in their lives beforehand, and so they're just kind of getting their comeuppance. And so there, there really isn't any basis for ethical action. It, it it's provides some inconsistencies there for any really ethical action or justice. Um, in this caste system, which is technically outlawed in, in India now, but is still very prevalent in the culture and the minds of the people there, and especially practicing Hindus, they don't take seriously the image of God at all or the inherent dignity of human life. It doesn't value women much at all. And like I said, it provides really no ethical basis for uh, justice um, because it doesn't take into account the complexities of life. Christianity says, yeah, somebody might be worse off materially. That doesn't necessarily mean, though, that it was their fault completely. Uh, it, it might be somewhat due to, the, to their bad decisions, but it, we can't just completely blame it on them. For example, uh, if someone is born disabled, um, that in Christianity, we, we don't have to say that that was their, that person's fault or something like that at all. But in Hinduism, they struggle to not just blame that on the person, which is difficult. Um, and so in this caste system, you have religious priests at the top. You then have a warrior caste. And then merchants and landowners, then commoners, peasants, and farmers. And then on the bottom you have, and they're not even considered like in the pyramid, is what they call the untouchables, if you've heard mm -hmm. of that term before. The people that are completely outside of the caste system are the untouchables or the outcasts. So a logical <coughs> outflow of that is that everything is your fault. Evil is always your fault. And so if you're born in a good situation, you, de you definitely deserved it. And if you're born in a bad situation, you definitely deserve that, which is just a difficult thing to live with. And this connects into a theme that we're going to talk about in all these religions, apart from Christianity, is that if you don't have a system of grace, if you have no conception of grace from your creator, if it's a works-based system or a moralistic system, you're going to be left with two ditches, basically. If there's no grace in a system, you're either going to be always despairing or prideful. You're always going to be either despairing because you can't measure up to the law written on your heart. You can't measure up to the standard, and there's no forgiveness, and there's no savior because the savior is you being good enough. And so you're either despairing always, or the other end of the spectrum is that you're prideful because you think you've actually justified yourself and you think you're good enough when you're not. And so all of these systems, apart from Christianity, any system that doesn't lack a conception of grace leads to either pride or despair. And Hinduism is a, pri is a prime example of this. And so this is a pretty 
difficult system to live with consistently. Mm -hmm. And then one more thing with Hinduism that I just thought of. I don't know about you all, but when I was a kid, I was really, really confused by incarnation because it didn't explain population increases. Like if someone dies, they should just come back as, as a person. And I was really confused about that as a kid, so I don't know. He's a genius. <laughs> a boy genius. <laughs> all right. Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Buddhism is connected to Hinduism, but definitely distinct, and distinct enough, certainly, to be a completely different faith uh, in general. There are many tales as to how Buddhism came to be, but most prominently is the idea that in the 4th and 5th century in India, there was this man named Siddhartha Gautama. That's the best mm. I can do. Uh, and he is the Buddha. And he, basically a spiritual sage, who went on a journey of spiritual, intellectual enlightenment, and the following of followers of Buddhism kind of come out of that. Uh, as to the nature of reality, Buddhists are kind of less dogmatic uh, about these sorts of things, but in general, Buddhists deny the existence of God. Buddhists are atheists. They don't, they don't believe that God exists. They don't believe in any God or gods. I think the most helpful way to characterize Buddhism is a spiritual atheism. I think that's the most helpful way to define it. A spiritual atheism is Buddhism. They're atheistic in that they deny the existence of any divine being, but they're spiritual in the fact that they still have many quasi-religious practices, that when we'd mm. see it, we'd go, well, they're probably religious or something. Um, so in Buddhism, there's no lasting self or soul. Rather, we're all part of the same kind of river or stream of nature, consciousness, something, something, and it's vague. Again, we're not different from the world around us, ultimately. There isn't like unique souls, um, so it's kind of, <clears throat> naturalistic in that sense. Uh, and then the nature of reality, really with Buddhism, and this is kind of a summary of Buddhism, can be, can be summarized in what they call the Four Noble Truths. Okay, And this is an analysis of the world from a Buddhist perspective. One is the truth of suffering. They say that life is suffering and everything is fleeting. Now, that by itself sounds like the book of Ecclesiastes. right? Like Christianity actually has a common touch point there. They recognize something true about the world, which is that without God... Everything is just fleeting and life is suffering. Like, yeah, a Christian can get along with that pretty well. Uh, two is the cause of suffering. And they say the cause is our desires and our attachment to the world. Again, Christianity is not super far off from that, but still distinct. I'm going to talk about that. So they believe that everything is suffering. The cause of that is our desires and our attachment to the world. And so the cessation of suffering, which is the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering is nirvana or enlightenment, where our desires are quenched. Ultimately, we are able to stamp down all of our earthly desires and our earthly emotional attachments to the world, and we just completely disattach. Um, that is the third noble truth, and that's how we basically achieve salvation. And, and the way that uh, Buddhists would articulate this is what they call the Eightfold Path, which is the fourth noble truth. It's lots of numbers. The fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path, which is just kind of the, the guidelines for how we're going to disattach from the world, and I'll go over that in a minute. Uh, you go. Yeah. Uh, so what is the nature of man in Buddhism? So we would say no soul and ignorance. So no soul, obviously in Christianity, we believe in imago dei. We're made in the image of God. We have a soul. We have a will and an intellect. All right. And there's a whole debate with that about whether it's uh, like one thing or if we have two or three parts, but that that's for another time. But uh, Christianity believes in that. Buddhism would not hold to that. Now they would they would obviously say that we are able to will things and, and stuff like that, but they wouldn't say something like, oh, it's the image of God, or they wouldn't say, oh, we have something like a soul. Mm -hmm. Christianity makes that distinction. Um, and then for the nature of man, they would also say 
really we're ignorant. We don't know anything, and that's why we need to reach this enlightenment, right? So that's those are the big two points. So a little bit different than than Hinduism. So uh, no soul and ignorant. And then also the big thing is we have unquenchable desires. Okay, so so they are there, and actually Will is going to talk about this when we analyze it, but. Um, C.S. Lewis makes a point on this and why it doesn't work, but these unquenchable desires, they're part of us, and we kind of need to push them away, yeah. right? Um, and so that's the nature of man right there, how man works. So no soul, uh, we are ignorant and have these desires that we need to control. Yeah. So the end of man, very related to this, is that we need to dis disattach from the world. And they do this through the Eightfold Path. And just to summarize real quickly, the Eightfold Path is to have the right view the right resolve, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation, or samadhi is the word that they use. So again, very moralistic. If you're good enough, things will work out. Uh, you will achieve enlightenment or spiritual truth. Mm -hmm. um, and that is the end of man. And ultimately, you die and nothing, because they actually don't believe in an afterlife. Most Buddhists do not, I believe. So. analysis of Buddhism. So uh, just kind of like with Hinduism, yeah. karma is mysterious. So that internal consistency, so it, and actually both of these systems when we're talking about karma, there is no like um, reward-based system or like, hey, if you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this will happen, right? Or you get this much of a reward. Karma is mysterious. People want to say if you do good, good things will happen. If you do bad, bad things will happen. But what what is behind this thing called karma actually dishing out the good and evil? So what what are are we really to say that it gets everything right? We would have to say that something has to be uh, intellectual, personal, and able to make these decisions and know everything to correctly dish out this caramel, but at that point, that kind of sounds like a monotheistic god, like, oh, personal, intellectual, powerful enough to actually dish out this good and evil, yeah. stuff like that. So we would say that internal consistency doesn't explain everything. Karma is mysterious. It doesn't have a set guideline of rules saying, hey, this is how I work. This is how good and evil is dished out, and this is how we ensure that it's correctly done. Um, and then for external consistency, again, just like Hinduism, and, and since these two are connected, you're going to hear a couple um, repeated points. Just like when we get to the Abrahamic faiths, you're going to hear a couple repeated points. But external consistency is eternal universe. That would, again, go against the philosophical arguments and the scientific evidence. So philosophical arguments, like the idea we can't have an infinite regress, which we're, we're actually going to talk about in our next talk, the five ways, because that's, uh, that's a big point. But then also science. Um, science. The most recent, especially within the past 100 years, the most recent developments in science points to an origin of the universe, so the Big Bang. That, that theory right there has pretty much exploded in, in our culture, so it would go against that. Yes. And then existential consistency, uh, so, sort of similar problems to Hinduism, and a lot of them still believe in reincarnation, but again, this is all strictly, strictly naturalistic. So whatever kind of consciousness we have or whatever, it's all part of the same closed system without God in the picture, really. And so, again, that's a difficulty. But the main point is that um, this problem of ridding ourselves of our desires is not a consistent, livable system from a Christian point of view. Uh, so C.S. Lewis talks about how our desires are, yes, they're sinful and twisted, but they're ultimately a good thing that's there, but that's been twisted, and they point to something greater 
than us. They point to a world that we are not currently living in, but that we can live in. And so the Christian answer, the, the Buddhist answer says, get rid of desire. The Christian answer says, remove the impediments to the ultimate fulfillment of desire. Remove the impediments that are there uh, that are keeping us from actually the true desire, which is God himself. So nirvana versus the beatific vision. Um, one takes away hunger, the other gives everlasting food. If Christianity is true, then Buddhism is a very tragic solution to life. There's a feast being prepared for you, and you're trying to ignore the hunger in Buddhism. And Christianity says, no, they're there for a reason. They're not arbitrary. They're there for a point, and they point to something greater, and we want to welcome you into that. <laughs> Join the party of the faith and the, and the family of God. Um, so I think this actually helps us as we analyze Buddhism, it helps us understand Christianity a bit better as well. And how really all these religions are trying to grapple with existence and suffering and our desires, and Christianity can give really, really good answers to these questions. Mm -hmm. so next, we will talk about New Age. This will go a bit quicker. Hinduism and Buddhism, by far, are going to take the most time. Because uh, we don't know anything about them. <laughs> they, take, they take a while to describe. Uh, new Age is very similar. I would consider New Age basically a... The way I've been describing it is like a California version of Buddhism and Hinduism. It's an Americanized version of these Eastern faiths. Basically, an American adoption and syncretism of these Eastern beliefs. And so, this is even less structured New Age belief. It's not like there's New Age theologians. That's not a thing. They're just people on Instagram talking about crystals and stuff. So, it's, it's very vague, more, uh, less structured than Buddhism or Hinduism. And again, kind of an Americanized version of it. Uh, I think maybe a unique aspect to New Age might be like the worshipfulness, a worshipful view of nature. I think they might have uh, more of an emphasis on, on nature worship or just the idea of Mother Nature and environmentalism, things like that. Um, but it's, again, struggle to pin down a New Age worldview. There aren't many New Age theologians defending a position on the New Age. Um, so it's a difficult thing to pin down, but we're trying our mm -hmm. best. Um, now, what is the nature of man? So one important point we can actually get at comparing it with Christianity is that there's no original sin. So yeah. denial of original sin. So essentially, human beings are good, right? Yeah. Um, if, you, if you look at people, especially in America, this, you could see this idea has bled into it. If you don't believe in original sin, you say things like, oh, um, I'm, I'm not as bad as this person, or I'm a pretty good person. I, I like I give to the poor. I help when I when I need to. You know, stuff like that. Um, those are the kinds of things you'll hear. But they don't believe that uh, people are inherently evil. People have a problem of sin and need to be saved from it. You you won't hear that um, when it comes to the nature of man in New Age spirituality. So that's radically different from Christianity. So that that would be. Um, an arguing, an arguing point. So if you were to talk to someone about this, that, that might be a, a point you would try and uh, sway them on. Mm -hmm. um, next is inner turmoil is resolved through self-discovery. So we, we also hear this a lot. So the nature of man, we, we hear, oh, we need to um, discover ourselves, or a, a big term used today is deconstruction. We need to deconstruct from um, the faith we were brought up in or something like that and find ourselves. Right, so we have this inner turmoil. They wouldn't say original sin; they would say this uh, this inner confusion or this inner conflict. And we need to resolve it by finding by finding who we really are as a human being. Who who am I? What what do I view myself as? What do I feel? Right, and we'll actually go 
this overlaps a little bit with uh, postmodernism, which we'll go over yeah. later. So that concept right there, like uh, who am I, uh, what do I feel, you know, stuff like that. Um, there's definitely some overlap. So we actually have, I would actually say, now thinking about it, we have multiple moving parts influencing each other when it comes to the nature of man yep. and in our culture and new age spirituality. Yep. Uh, and then lastly, what is the end of man? <clears throat> um, I think for as many new age people as you will meet, you'll get as many answers as to what happens after you die. But I think some very popular answers are just reflective of our culture right now. So if you ask new age people, what happens if there's an afterlife or what happens when you die, I think you'll get a lot of pluralism and optimistic moralism, kind of what Sam has already yeah. touched on. So all religions are true, all roads lead to the same thing, or you'll get a sort of optimistic, we're all pretty much pretty good, unless you're Hitler, you're, you'll be all right. That's kind of just the religion of the day. Most people just think that. Uh, or, or you might get a vague spiritual, you know, consciousness absorbs into nature, that sort of nonsense. Um, you'll get some of that as well, I think. So... As we go on to analyze, then, New Age Spirit... Oh, wait, nope. I want to talk about the Law of Attraction real quick. Yeah. The Law of Attraction is basically karma, but in New Age spirituality, they use this term, the Law of Attraction. Uh, it's very similar. Uh, so they'll, they'll, they'll say, if you think positive thoughts and you send positive vibes into the universe or something, then positive things will happen back to you. Uh, positive things will return to you. And in America, this takes on a particularly materialistic tone. So in New Age in America, uh, it's very much like the law of attraction relates very strictly to like material possession. Whereas in the Eastern face, it might be, karma might be like actually quite connected to spirituality in the sense of like inner peace. In America, I think the law of attraction, when I see it, is more like, uh, if you do this, you'll get like a car. <laughs> the universe will send you blessing in that sense because we're American and that's what we value. So slightly different than karma, but very similar idea. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's it. Oh, we'll take that. I just had a thought. Yeah, Go maybe maybe that connects to um, you know prosperity gospel type of things as yeah. well. Like that has uh, that might be part of what influenced the prosperity gospel and that type of preaching and led to that formation in like Christian America, right? Yeah, like so. I think Oprah as kind of a thought leader of New Age spirituality. Yeah, even though she says she's a Christian, right? Right. So that would be like a Christian who who identifies as a Christian, but is also but is part of this New Age spirituality movement. Yeah. Yeah. All right, analysis of New Age spirituality. Uh, internal and external consistency. So for internal consistency, we would say the scope of explanation is low quality. So what I mean by scope of explanation is when you're analyzing worldviews, uh, the scope means how much does it cover, okay? So if you were to read someone like Douglas Grutice, as we mentioned earlier, he'll, he'll go over this and say, if you have a worldview, the less, uh, the less it explains, the uh, more likely it's not true. The more it explains, the more likely it is true. But what we would say about New Age spirituality specifically is we would say the scope of explanation, it might be wide, like you can, you can ask someone who is a part of this and they'll have an answer, but it's really low quality. So this would come from a less structured religion, as in you'll get different answers from everyone or they're pretty surface level answers um, and not well thought through, or they, they don't have any uh, basis in reality or any basis in evidence. It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, I kind of feel like this would happen, but that's pretty much it. So they have that explanation right there. Hey, it might work, but it's really low quality, not a, a very good one, right? So there, there's that internal consistency that we have a problem with right there. Um, so scope of expo explanation is not good. 
Number two is external consistency. We would say it's pseudoscientific. So we, we see some of these pseudoscientific practices bleeding into new age spirituality, whether, whether it be like crystals or astrology or anything like that or around those um, fields that people really get into. Uh, we would say that's uh, pseudoscientific, as in they say, hey, this works, this is, uh, this is what happens, this is, uh, like, all this. Scientists would say that's pseudoscience right there. And so it would go against actual scientific evidence. Yeah. Pseudoscience and science do not mix. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and then existential consistency, to be very brief, uh, from a Christian perspective, New Age dooms instead of saves. It has no clear conception of sin and no clear conception of a savior, to be very brief and blunt about it. Um, and then also just a very loose foundation. There's no, I've, I've heard that uh, one of our, the people that we, kind of a mentor figure for me and Samuel, he always talks about how uh, our minds are meant to be open, but meant to close on something firm. And in New Age spirituality, there's, not, there's no firm foundation. There's no actual belief system that's strong and firm. Mm -hmm. And so it's not satisfying to the intellect, and it's not ultimately satisfying to our soul and the deepest longings of our heart. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what we'd say in terms of mm -hmm. its livability. Yeah, so you have an open mind, and you never shut it on. Something. Yeah, you never shut on something because if someone else were to say, oh, I believe this, you, you have to say, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Next is the Abrahamic faiths. We got to get going a little quicker here. This yeah. should go. This should go faster. Um, we should be more familiar with these as well. Mm -hmm. But Judaism, this is a very difficult one to talk about briefly. Um, there are many different types of Judaism. Uh, there's various subgroups within Judaism that range from very practicing to not practicing at all. You might call it secular Jews, secular Judaism, very popular uh, today. It's not really a movement. It's just people that happen to be Jewish, but they're secular. Say so that's a lot of people in America today mm. um, that consider themselves Jewish, and then there's kind of everything in between. Um, so the nature of reality in Judaism, very much like Christianity, strict monotheism, strict as in no Trinity, God is unipersonal, uh, and then there's a very very strict, just as much in, as in Christianity, creature creator distinction is very much there and maintained. So we agree with them as far as that goes, but the nature of God, of course, we we would differ in terms of Trinity versus unipersonal. Mm -hmm. They believe the Trinity to be heretical and blasphemous. Mm -hmm. um, and for what is the nature of man, we would also agree with them, right? Yeah. Remember, they still hold the Old Testament and all those things. Um, and they also hold to what we would call uh, Second Temple writings, or at least some of them, or something like that. But they would say we're sinful. We would believe in that. And they would also say we're made in God's image, which we also believe in that as Christians. So we, we have a lot of common ground there. Correct. Uh, the end of man, very similar again to Christianity. They would say, I think a good Jew would say ultimately that our end is to glorify God or to enjoy God or something like that. Um, even though there are, I would say, a variety of perspectives on the afterlife in Judaism, mm -hmm. um, ranging from no afterlife to various conceptions of heaven and hell. Um, we see in the Old Testament that the, the clear notions of heaven and hell that Jesus lays out are less clear in the Old Testament. Not that mm -hmm. they're not there. I think they are there and present, but they're less clear um, and less easy to distinguish. That's why you have like parties like the Sadducees and the Pharisees who like mm -hmm. completely disagree on the afterlife in Jesus's day, and they're all considered Jews. And so, similar to today, you'll mm -hmm. get Jews that have a range of a range of opinions on the end of man. Yeah, in the picture of the guy, this is a Jewish theologian, right? One of the most significant. Moses um, Maimonides. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so he's a pretty cool guy to learn about, but that's that's the picture we got. Just so you're 
aware. It's not just some random figure we <laughs> All the pictures Google. we pick actually do have intentionality behind them, even if you have no idea who they are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Analysis. Analysis of Judaism. So uh, this, this gets interesting. So internal consistency. We would actually say Old Testament prophecies. Um, so the Old Testament in Judaism has the law and the prophets, right? So we wouldn't necessarily disagree with the, the law or the books of Moses or anything like that. It, it would be the prophets that we would say, what do you do with these, right? Um, so they, they have all these prophecies like, hey, this will happen, uh, I'll, I'll send a savior, or let's look at Isaiah, for example. Um, we would get passages like the suffering servant. Um, what do they do with that, right? Um, we would say Jesus, but they would, they, they would obviously not say that. But if you go to uh, Jewish thinkers, they would say it's Israel. Uh, so Tovia Singer, he's, uh, he, he would literally just say all those passages in Isaiah uh, that we would say are about Jesus is literally just Israel. So suffering servant, all those specifics where we're like, oh, wow, he was pierced in the side for our transgressions and stuff like that. They would just say, yep, Israel. Um, and that's, that's pretty much the answer for all the Old Testament prophecies. But uh, another problem with that is, is really, okay, what, what in reality is actually going to happen then? What, like, what, do you, what are you waiting for? Is there really something that's going to happen that's more uh, world-changing than Jesus Christ, right? That's what we would say. Um, now, to be fair, uh, for like Tovia Singer, the... The thinker, we, we would say there is warrants on some grounds to actually believe that because there are times when uh, Isaiah would refer to Israel that way, right? So he would say there are grounds, but he would just then take it way too far and say all of them are Israel, where it's like there are some passages that would be really difficult to explain that. External consistency, the historical Jesus. We, the historical Jesus and the event of the resurrection and all of what happened in the New Testament is the best attested ancient documents and ancient events pretty much we have. So if we're really going to say Judaism is true and Jesus wasn't actually who he said he was, we have to deal with all of that external evidence right there. Um, the death and resurrection of Jesus is probably the most scrutinized and looked into event ever. Yeah. Right? So many people disagree with, uh, with it. So many people agree with it. And so many people are influenced by it that that's a huge problem for religions. If you disagree with the historical Jesus, that is a huge dividing line. Right. And uh, to go out, I like the point you made about what are they waiting for. Mm -hmm. um, there's a whole ministry on YouTube that you can look at uh, where people just go and read Isaiah 53 to Jews, like in Israel. And it's like the first time they've ever heard Isaiah 53. And they say, who is this talking about? And they say, oh, Jesus. And he's like, where do you think, it, where do you think it's found in the scriptures? And they say, it's in the New Testament. And they say, no, it's in the Old Testament. And there's a whole ministry that's dedicated to that, which is amazing. Because it's just so clear. Like, Isaiah 53 describes the crucifixion in more detail than any of the Gospels. It's actually amazing. Written 700 years before Christ. And so, um, yes, what else are they waiting for in terms of a, a, a savior, a Messiah figure that is going to convert the nations and convert the Gentiles to the true worship of Yahweh? Who else are they looking for? It's a good question to ask. And so that is obviously the biggest point of difference. So in terms of existential consistency, plain and simple, they don't have the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. And the, the sacrificial system, they agree with us that 
the wages of sin is death, and that sin requires atonement. Jews believe that. That's what the Old Testament teaches. But the temple is not there anymore. And so there isn't a system for that anymore. And so this is now just found in, I guess, just repentance and prayer. Um, but if they don't actually, if they're not trusting in the atonement that God has provided for us, then um, that isn't good. Uh, the book of Hebrews talks about and demonstrates at length the insufficiency of the sacrificial, sacrificial system and its true purpose, which is to point us to our sin, um, and Jews don't even have that anymore. And so without the grace of the gospel, clearly, which, I mean, Christians need to hear the grace of the gospel consistently because we consistently mess it up and turn it into a workspace thing ourselves. Uh, but without a clear preaching of the grace of, of the gospel, a workspace system very easily follows. And so when you'll hear, like I think of Ben Shapiro, I listen to Ben Shapiro quite a bit. I have listened to him a lot in my life, and he's kind of the, the Jew that I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least when I, when I hear, you know, just Jews and culture, Ben Shapiro's very popular. And he'll talk about, it's very interesting if you hear him interact with Christians, he'll talk about like his need for daily repentance. I've heard him say things like that. I'm like, that's good. But when I've asked him about, uh, he, he like asked directly a Catholic bishop, Bishop Barron, in an interview with him, he says, um, what's the Catholic view of my salvation situation? Am I going to heaven? I feel like I've lived a pretty good life. And he gave the exact same answer that you'd get from anybody off the street asking, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And they just go, oh, I'm a pretty good person. So it's like, Ugh, come on, Ben, that's not, that's not the answer we're looking for from a Christian perspective, obviously. Um, so it does seem like they have a workspace conception of judgment to a large degree. Mm-hmm. Then another another Jew is Dennis Prager. So for yeah. from Prager, you and I and his some of his coworkers or people he works with frequently from actually the Daily Wire have talked to him about Christianity and his his problem with existential consistency. Uh, just just to let you know, he would he actually has a problem with grace and mercy. And this is a point we do want to make: is some people actually do have a problem with that. They they like Dennis Prager said, I believe in earning. What I, uh, like earning things, I need to work for it. He's, uh, he, would, he would hold to that. He's, he's just like, I don't understand grace. Why, why would I just give it to someone if they didn't work for it, right? right. Um, and so that's actually one of the reasons he's, he's not a Christian. So we would, we would say that some Jews here don't actually understand that stuff. And the approach yeah. to them is just the exact approach Jesus takes in the Sermon on the Mount, is you think you fulfilled the law, I'm going to tell you how you haven't. And the true standard is much higher than you think it is. Mm-hmm. So next, Islam. This is a long talk, guys. We're, we're going to make it through, though. Yes. Islam, nature of reality, basically the same as Judaism, strict monotheism, creator-creature distinction, very strong and clear. But the one distinct, unique thing about Islam is that I would consider it to be more fatalistic or deterministic than Christianity or Islam. So everything is determined by the will of Allah. Now, this is kind of similar to Christianity, depending on the type of Christian you are. Christians differ on this issue, but Islam is like very strict fatalism. Everything happens just by the will of Allah. There is no contingency in the choices of creatures or anything like that. Very fatalistic. And then what is the nature of man? We, we would make two points. So we would say sinful but able, right? Yeah. So, so they believe in this thing called sin, but they would also say we're able to complete actions or uh, complete enough things to actually achieve this. Um, and they would say that through the five pillars, which is the profession of faith, prayer, almsgiving, fasting, and pilgrimage, right? Those are the things we need to do. So uh, so, so I, I would say they don't have nearly as strong of an idea of sin as we do. So would they affirm original sin? Uh, 
Well, yeah, maybe, but not in as strong of a sense as we would, not, no. not nearly. Um, so, th so that's what they would say about men, but um, if I believe, I, I think they would also hold to image of God, right? Mm -hmm. They do believe that we do have an intellect and a will. Um, if, you, if you talk to Islamic thinkers, they would hold to that. So they actually agree on quite a bit when it comes to the nature of man, but they, they wouldn't be as strong in sin. And then at, towards the end of man, Islam believes very strictly in paradise, heaven and hell. Um, Allah judges how good you are based on what you've done. That's not a caricature or anything like that. That's what is true. Um, righteousness is conceived in external deed and action. And this is one of the things that I, I feel like the Sermon on the Mount deconstructs all of the religions because it, it really gets to the heart of the matter, literally, and it says, your heart is the main driver behind your actions. It doesn't matter if externally you look good. Uh, the heart and the motivation behind things is required for righteousness. And none of us live up to that standard. There also, in the conception of the afterlife in Islam, there seems to be a greater conception of uh, carnal pleasures as the reward for things. It seems like, um, I won't go into the details of that, but there seems to be a, a greater emphasis on the physical pleasures of this life as like the greatest thing. And I feel like that's a weakness of the religion itself because I just feel like we know as humans that that's not, that's not it. That's not the greatest possible thing, is sex, as, as, as the greatest possible thing, or food, or whatever. Um, I think Christianity gives a more satisfying account of the actual desires of our soul, which is not just carnal pleasures. Mm -hmm. So now to an analysis of it. Yeah, and then, and then one more thing. When it comes to paradise, uh, the, uh, the other point that we wanted to make is there are actually some, because it's an Abrahamic faith, there are, there are similar imagery. So when they talk about paradise, they would actually use this term, have no idea how to pronounce it, but it would mean a dense garden, right? Um, so they have this idea or imagery of a garden, uh, just like Adam and Eve, mm -hmm. right? So it's not completely foreign to us, this paradise, but they would add that carnal pleasure part where we're like, are, are, are you sure about that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Analysis of Islam, our analysis. Here we go. Internal consistency. So internal consistency, they would say the incorruptibility of scripture. They, they would say it's incorruptible, but also the problem with that is they say the Bible is corrupted, right? Um, so they, they have the Quran, but in the Quran, it would actually, at some points, it refers back to the Bible, and they would also say the Bible is corrupt. So there is that apparent contradiction right there where we would say they have to explain that. Um, and then for external consistency, just like with Judaism, they would have to deal with the historical Jesus and uh, also the historical records of Islam. But when when you make a claim about Jesus and you disagree with um, Christians, you have to deal with the historical evidence. So mm -hmm. remember, Jews say, uh, I believe they say Jesus died, uh, he lived, died, didn't rise again. Um, Christians say he lived, died, rose again. And then Islam says, I think they actually hold that he never died. Mm -hmm. um, so they would have to deal with that. And so there are specific works that are set out to prove that Jesus actually died. So for example, there's this one called Died He Before Me. It's a book by a medical doctor. He actually goes through the crucifixion process and everything that happened to Jesus in that time frame and lists everything medical that could have happened to him um, as he went through it. And the medical consensus from, from like modern day science and medicine is that no one could have survived that. It is 
impossible for someone to have survived that. So um, when, when Islam claims, oh, he never died, that's a big, big problem right there. Yeah. Um, and then the historical records of Islam, if you compare it with like the New Testament, it brings up significant issues. So if we're talking about the Quran and the prophecies of, uh, of Muhammad and just attestations of who he is and what he did, we have a giant gap. So in the New Testament, we have documents within a generation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, things written down within a generation in Islam, it's like hundreds of years yeah. of, of a gap, which brings up problems for history. We don't know what happened in those hundreds of years, yeah. right? You can't, what, what Paul uses in the New Testament often, he, he says, oh, you disagree or have a problem with this? Go back to the people and ask them. They're still alive. The eyewitnesses are still alive. You, you could not have done that with Islam, right? When those, all those things were written down or um, when, when they were attested to, you can't go back and ask the eyewitnesses, right? And then lastly, the existential consistency, <clears throat> the, the livability of Islam, three points. One, assurance of salvation. How can you know that you're good enough? How can you know that you've been good enough before Allah? Is God's standard not perfection? Does he grade us on a curve? Um, is there not a perfect standard that we have to live up to? And have you really lived up to that? And how do you know that? Um, what kind of system is that? What is the role of the heart behind our actions? Also, fatalism presents a, a dizzying account of how our actions actually work. If they're all just determined and fated by a law, um, that is difficult for a lot of people to grasp. And then I would say kind of the other surrounding issue of extremism and living with that. If we consider the extreme statements in, in the Quran and the statements that are commanded for adherents of the faith to live consistently while not being an extremist, the tension of what I'm commanded to do in my religion, let's just say as like a military age male, what my commandments are from Muhammad himself. Living consistently with that is a difficult tension. Um, that's hard to live with. And then there's a whole host of other social problems like the role of women, the highly questionable character of, of Muhammad, etc. But that's for another talk. Mm -hmm. Okay, Christianity. Woo! Three cheers. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. We're Christians. Uh, the nature of reality. Uh, the one thing I'll touch on is that it, it agrees in the cre uh, creator-creature distinction with the other two Abrahamic faiths. But the unique thing about Christianity is the Trinity. So Christians believe that God is one God in three persons. It's confusing. It stretches our minds, but it is far from contradictory. Mm. We worship one what and three who's. God is no more one than he is three and no more three than he is one. One of the amazing implications of the Trinity is that God is eternally love. Love requires a beloved. And so we can say that God didn't wait for creation to start loving. He has eternally been love. And that makes sense more so on the Trinity. The Trinity reflects that. At the most basic foundation, reality was made from love and for love. Love didn't begin, it has always been. The persons of the Trinity eternally glorify each other. Our morality stems from the Trinity in that our lives are all about right relationships, not self-centeredness. The greatest thing a human can do is love self-sacrificially, just like his or her maker has done from all eternity. So the Trinity is just beautiful and a much more satisfying picture of reality and opens us up to um, what love is really like. Love has always been, and it's what we're made for. Uh, creation is very strictly not God, but is created out of the overflow of divine goodness in Christianity. Um, what is the nature of man? We've gone over a lot of stuff so far, but... We would say, in God's image, 
but fallen and sinful, okay? Mm -hmm. So with the other Abrahamic faiths, they would also hold to imago dei, so like intellect and will, just that specifically. But um, I would actually say Christianity specifically has the strongest emphasis on original sin mm -hmm. or how bad it actually is. So um, total depravity is what I would say. We can make no progress at all by ourselves towards God. I would say Christianity is the one that stays true to that notion right there. Yeah. Um, and that's the distinct thing that we would say about the nature of men. Obviously, Christianity believes a lot more than that about human beings, but that's the distinct point that we want to make. Yes. The end of man in Christianity is the beatific vision, which is to be in God's presence, achieved by our union with Christ through faith. Yeah. That's the end of man. All right. Um, let's see. Analysis of Christianity. So we did not want to just like leave it blank, right? <laughs> we want to like, try to critique it and be fair. Yeah, yeah. so we, um, we obviously think it's true, 100% true, and everything is right about it. But what we put on here are the challenges we have, because we aren't without challenges, as in there aren't, there, there's not, like, we don't have to not explain, mm -hmm. right? So we have to explain things. So when it comes to internal consistency, I would say we'd have to explain apparent contradictions, right? So we would not call them contradictions. We would say apparent contradictions. Yeah. Um, so the Trinity, a lot of people don't understand that. They would say it's a contradiction. How can one being be three persons? So we would say we have to deal with that. We have to explain it. And there's been a ton of work on this in history, and it's really, really difficult to talk about the Trinity, especially without being a heretic. But um, that's something we have to solve. All right. The, also, to explain the, how it's not a contradiction. Yeah, pretty oh, much. Just give one possible explanation of how it could work, right. right? And then same with the incarnation. How could God become human and be still fully God and fully yeah. human, right? They uh, and have two natures, right? Um, it shows that Christianity is not a man-made religion because nobody would come up with the Trinity. Yeah. Nobody would come That's up with the incarnation. We, we as Christians have to deal with how God has revealed himself to us. Mm -hmm. All the other religions say, yeah, God's going to do this, and the afterlife is going to be basically how I'd come up with it if I was a guy. Yeah. No, Christianity says it's completely different. We have to deal with how God has revealed himself to us in Scripture. Mm -hmm. And so those are the internal, uh, internally consistent things we have to deal with, but we would say they're still true even though we have to deal with them. External consistency, we would say we have to deal with all challenges from Jews, Muslims, atheists, anything like that. So challenges from atheists, it's almost always problem of evil, almost always, um, or problem of animal suffering or stuff like that. Sometimes it's historical stuff, but because Christianity has been scrutinized so much, it's not that a ton. Um, challenges from Jews and Muslims, Jews would, uh, would obviously say they're right and um, they would claim certain things about Jesus, so we would have to engage with those claims. Same with Muslims. All the stuff we went over with, with Islam, we would have to engage with those claims. Um, we can't just leave it and be like, oh, yep, I don't have to explain myself. Mm -hmm. Existentially, how does Christianity do on the livable scale? I think we're all Christians. We're trying to work things out. It's going pretty well uh, for some of us, perhaps. Um, but it's tough. The idea of self-denial in Christianity, that we have to deny ourselves and submit ourselves to God's will, is a difficult thing. Livably, to, to do that livably and consistently is difficult because the Christian life is difficult. Um, so on the face of it, that might seem like a difficult thing to live with, um, which it is. But ultimately, 
I like the, the conception in Christian hedonism of the more we deny ourselves and pursue God, actually the greater joy we will have in our souls. Our souls will be more and more fulfilled the more we find our pleasure and our delight in God and not earthly things, um, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the, the concept of grace, I think, makes Christianity livable. The idea that we don't have to be morally perfect, that we can't be, and that we can trust in Christ uh, makes Christianity livable and is a huge advantage to us existentially. Also, like Pascal said in the beginning, it gives a coherent account of man, both that man is awful and awesome in different senses, right? Uh, so that is kind of an account of man in Christianity. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay, on to the secular face. We'll burn through these real quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, we have atheism. The nature of reality in atheism. Nothing exists beyond the material universe. It is only materialism, materialistic nature, naturalism. Um, it's a closed system. There's nothing outside of the system that exists. Yeah, and um, also for that, they would deny two of the four causes. So we've gone over the four causes before in Aristotle. Um, they would deny a couple of them. They would only hold to something like the material cause, which is just what something is made out of. Um, now, the nature of man, we would say uh, purple, purposeless and animalistic. Um, and we aren't, we aren't trying to be negative about this. If you go back to the older atheists, which is what we're, what we're actually critiquing here. So the picture we have up here, this is Nietzsche, right? The, mm-hmm. Yeah, so this one we have is Nietzsche. If you go back to these older atheists, they actually accept their claims, right? They go to the philosophical conclusions of their claims and they accept it. So when we say the nature of man is purposeless and animalistic, a lot of newer atheists or atheists today might be like, well, I wouldn't say that. I would say life still has a purpose. No, these atheists back then, the thinkers, they would be like, yeah, there's absolutely no reason. Um, And they, they follow that where it leads. There are some atheists who even claim in their writings, they're like, I'm amazed at my own belief. Right, because they're like, wow, how how did I get to this conclusion? But they were committed, yeah. right? So that's the atheism we're critiquing right there. So we are really in this view just animals, mm-hmm. right? We're just another animal that happened to exist. Yeah. And the end of man depends on the sort of atheist you are. Um, but some believe basically, eat, drink, and be merry for today or tomorrow you you will die. So you follow desires, a sort of hedonism there. Um, some some just say survive and thrive, sort of an evolutionary. <laughs> yeah. Naturalism, strive and, what's, what's Blake's thing? Survive and thrive? Wait, is that Blake's thing? I didn't intend to do that. <laughs> that might be exactly what Blake is not an well. atheist, just, <laughs> just for the record. Or the end of atheism is nothingness. And that's the end of atheism, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Nothing happens, uh, consciousness is ceased. That's it. So now I'm to All analyze right. that. Yes. And who do we, who do we have for this picture? That's, I think that's... Jean-Paul Sartre. Yeah, Sartre. Yeah, Sartre, or whatever you pronounce it. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Internal consistency. Um, we would say rationality and morality. So for rationality, the internal consistency is this: when atheists act and live, they trust their own reasoning, but their reasoning, uh, they, they can't account for their reasoning. That's a contradiction right there. They're, they're saying, yes, we're just animals. Uh, how we think is really just chemical reactions and stuff like that, um, and things are deterministic. But if things are like that, you cannot trust your own rationality uh, because it's really just the byproduct of 
atoms colliding, right? That's, that, that was the reason C.S. Lewis became a Christian, right? That was what led him that way. That was the very first critique where he was like, crap. Um, then for morality, same thing. A lot of atheists act like they are moral creatures, but they don't account for it. Um, many atheists would just say, yeah, right and wrong does not exist. Um, and that's pretty much it. Uh, so th those are big problems internally within their system because they want to say, oh, this is rational or this is moral, but they really can't. Um, and then for external consistency, origins and design. So we would say the scientific evidence, again. So the scientific evidence of the origin of the universe, that's really, really hard for an atheist to explain. Like if you, if you hear atheist philosophers talk about the origin of the universe or engage with something like the Kalam cosmological argument, they'll say, oh yeah, there was nothing before the universe, but that nothing made something. And, or they would describe the nothing as just like a bunch of particles floating around. And well, the thing is, is that's not nothing right there. Um, and so they have a really hard time engaging with the origin of the universe, and then they also have a really, really difficult time with design, the fine-tuning of everything. Um, they don't really have an explanation for it. So they, they, when we were talking about worldviews have a scope, um, we would say they lack this scope at this point. They, they cannot account for how designed the universe looks, right? Yeah. And then the last thing, again, historical Jesus. If you're going to be an atheist and say Jesus uh, did, uh, well, actually some go really, really far. Some say that he like didn't even exist. Uh, some say he was just a person, uh, but most people, most atheists would say, yes, he was a person and actually died. But you still have to deal with what happened after, right? He, he rose again, he changed the world, you have to deal with that. Right. Atheism and livability, how Existentially satisfying is atheism, I would say, not very much. Evil is ultimately meaningless. Love, justice, hope are illusions. Things that we find delightful, beauty, the aesthetic things in life that we enjoy, music, these are all simply evolutionary byproducts that happen to make our brain hit certain buttons that make us happy, but ultimately they're illusions. On the Christian worldview, uh, all of these things actually point to something beyond. They're actually signposts to a greater reality, and the, thing, the, the, the beautiful things in our life are not illusions. They're, some, they're, they're pointing to something greater. And then ultimately, the inevitability and consequences of death under atheism are difficult to live with. That's about it. And almost done here. Postmodernism, yeah. real quickly, just because this is such a pervasive cultural phenomenon right now, I would say our world is postmodern right now. Um, it's not really a worldview. Iron to call postmodernism a worldview is sort of an oxymoron and ironic because postmodernism is a rejection of ideology. It's a rejection of any structured system. Everybody is just their own individual with their own story. And there's nothing more than that. There's not really a worldview. Um, and also, from this, we'll make sort of objective statements. There is no worldview. There is no objective system. That's an objective statement that self-contradicts. Um, so that's difficult. So they reject objectivity while trying to make objective statements still. Um, yeah, and really it's all about gaining freedom from these oppressive structures of society. Mm -hmm. But it's not really a worldview in and of itself. Yeah, and then we would go to the next two points, which is expressive individualism and relativistic. So expressive individualism would be meaning before reason. So it's really just how you express yourself before um, 
the rationality of something. So this actually goes all the way back to a literary movement. And so in this literary movement, when they were critiquing poetry, uh, a couple of thinkers said, okay, to change society, we actually have to make art, write poetry, to change the heart of a person before we change the mind of a person. And that's actually how it started. They were like, okay, first change their heart and how they feel about something, and then later we'll talk about uh, rational things, mm. right? And so another way to put this would be existence precedes essence. So it's who you are, how you feel, uh, and all of that before what you are and the essence of human beings and the essence of things. It's just how you feel before any of that stuff. Um, in the picture we have up here, great book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. He's the, uh, he's, this is probably the foremost work on, on this topic right now, today. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's like a 400-page book. Would highly recommend it. Um, Will has done a bunch of studying on it. I'm halfway through it, but it's, it's really, really good. We would recommend it. Um, and yeah, that's what I would say about postmodernism. Yes. Yeah. All right. Sorry, there's one more. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Uh, really quickly, because we've never addressed cults before, we're going to give it a super, super, super brief kind of garbage treatment, which it deserves more, and we should really talk about Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses more, more specifically. But just to be very brief, even though this is the longest talk in the history of mankind, um, practical definition of a cult, a relatively small group of people having religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or sinister. <laughs> that's the Google definition of a cult, which I think is colloquially, I think when people say cult, that's kind of what they mean. Um, and to be like, to start a cult, it's helpful to look like Joseph Smith, very handsome looking dude. And you can get a good following by just being an attractive person who garners attention to themselves. And yeah, so a lot of the kind of cultic movements have started in that kind of way. These are heretical offshoots of Christianity. Mormons, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, they're heretical offshoots. And the big point is simply they reject the unique status of Jesus. That's the biggest point. All of the cultic uh, elements um, of these different uh, cults and worldviews are really just centering around a rejection of the unique status of Jesus as God and Savior for us. Mm -hmm. So that's really all we're going to go over today. Yeah, so final words before our prayer and the Q&A and everything like that. So final words. The challenge of religious plural, pluralism we need to address because we literally just went over all this stuff. Uh, all right, some people are willing and wanting to say that all religions are true, right? When we talked about New Age spirituality, we, hit, we kind of hit that point. Like if someone said something about what they believe, you kind of just have to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, sounds good. But <clears throat> none of these religions would actually agree with religious pluralism. So on all of those, uh, all those slides, well, with the, actually pretty much the, well, no, yeah, 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 yeah. all of them would disagree, all right? So. All of them would disagree with religious pluralism, so you could put that on every slide. So Christianity, Judaism, even New Age spirituality, they would all say they're the right way, right? Mm -hmm. Even New Age spirituality, even though they have to accept other people's beliefs, they would still say New Age spirituality is the right way. And if, if a Christian came up to them and said, oh, no, Christianity is the only way, well, they would disagree with that right there. Yeah. Um, and so that's the big thing. Then... Um, 
Another point to make is these religions make mutually exclusive claims. So when we were going through this whole talk, you saw that they disagreed on things. So for example, Jesus and the Abrahamic faiths. Jews say one thing about him, Christians say another, is, uh, Islam says yet another thing about Jesus. So you can't have all of them be true. It opposes rationality, okay? Yeah. So what we would say in the end is this, Christianity is the only religion that correctly identifies our problem and provides an adequate solution. So when we're talking about Blaise Pascal at the beginning, we would say it's the only one that fully explains our wretchedness and righteousness, mm -hmm. and then also gives us a livable answer and solution to that, okay? Yeah. We would say all other religions or systems either have a problem with one of those points or all of them, mm -hmm. okay? And so we would like to end with C.S. Lewis's quote right here. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So that's really just saying the right worldview will enlighten or enhance everything else about reality because it's true. If you did not have the true worldview, you would not have that. Yeah. Okay? So yeah. to end... I feel like I need a shower after that. That was, that was, that was a lot. <laughs> and a lot of like information, a lot of it's not true. And so it's, we're going to end with a good Puritan prayer to like kind of sanctify our minds. Uh, so just to end out, this is the Valley of Vision prayer. It says, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the depths but see in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Amen. Amen. All right.